This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Coming on stage to Jar Rule, so there we are. Good afternoon, dear audience, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Becky Fincham, and alongside Luke Wright, I programme and produce Babylon, the strand of this glorious festival which celebrates the magic of poetry and spoken word with an emphasis on performance. And as such, we have three groundbreaking, deeply talented poets lined up for you today. After my intro, the three poets, Charlie Cox, Tay Tibble and Teresa Lola will perform one after another for just under an hour. Then after the event, they'll be over in the bookshop and we'll be happy to chat to you while they sign copies of their books. It's official. We've fallen back in love with poetry. So declared the Metro newspaper earlier this year when it reported a 12% increase in book sales, in poetry book sales, in 2018. Now, if you're here in the audience like me, you probably never fell out of love with poetry. We all know it's a superior literary form anyway. Don't at me, non-fiction. We all, like, but after years of being told that poetry was niche or specialist, it seems as though the form is speaking more directly to more people than ever. Fueling the boom is a tranche of bold, energetic new voices, exploring issues from multi-generational identity to mental health to faith on the page, the stage, and across social media. On the page, the stage, and across social media. See, I've got a bit of an issue with today's event title. It's not on here, but it was Generation Next New Poetic Voices, which actually Luke and I chose back in January. Because Generation Next New Voices, it might suggest that these three poets are at the start of their poetic lives, on the cusp of great things. However, long before publication, these poets had already amassed and refined a vast body of work. They'd found support and strength in their networks, They'd shared their material on social media, on stages. They'd made a name for themselves, built a profile, all of which laid the foundations for a publishing deal. The reality of poetry publishing is that it consolidates and draws energy from a skill that has already been maturing there for some time. Which is to say, performing for us today, there are three poets with debut collections who are not at the start, but who are in the full flow of their poetic lives. These poets may be newer compared to the, um, <clears throat> how do I say this delicately, delicately, crusty old dudes who have been dominating poetry for too long. But my God, I wish I'd read these three collections a very long time ago. Just listen to these biographies. Charlie Cox is a writer, producer and a poet. In January 2017, she published her first poem on Instagram, showing her followers her poetry for the first time. Since then... Her best-selling debut collection, She Must Be Mad, was published in 2018, when she was described as the Carol Ann Duffy of social media by the Sunday Times Style magazine. She's been Virgin Radio's poet in residence and is ambassador for mental health charity MQ. Her second collection, Validate Me, will be published by HarperCollins this October. Tay Tibble completed a Master's in Creative Writing from the International Institute of Modern Letters, Victoria University of Wellington, in 2017. There, she won the Adam Foundation Prize for her work in a fish tank filled with pink light, following in the footsteps of other renowned winners, such as Eleanor Catton and Hera Lindsay Bird. Pocahangatus, her first book, was published by Victoria University Press last year, of which poet Hein Moana Baker says, here is a writer who is experiencing herself as powerful, restrained, but unafraid. Teresa Lola is a poet, events programmer and workshop facilitator. She is currently the Young People's Laureate for London. Her debut collection, In Search of Equilibrium, was published by Nine Arches Press in February this year. Pascal Petit describes it as a glorious hymn to being alive and wounded in a dazzling array of images. Teresa Lola is a joint winner of the 2018 Brunel International African Poetry Prize, and she won the 2017 Hammer and Tongue National Slam at the Albert Hall. And she's featured as a force for change in this month's issue of Vogue, guest edited by the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle. 
So here in these de debut collections, we have three distinct unflinching voices, masterfully bringing their truths to the page. Three voices whose courages give language to the contradictions and complexities of life itself. And in turn, in our reading, gives us the reminder that we are not alone. What a massive honour to have these three poets together today. Dear audience, please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Charlie Cox. Like I have to do a lot of hand movements in this dress. It might get a bit bird-like by the end, and I'm so okay with that. Um, full disclosure, I accidentally had a very successful date the other night. The night before I was supposed to come to Edinburgh, it was so successful that I lost my handbag. Uh, and I came to Edinburgh with no clothes, other than the one that I was wearing for said date, but thankfully the shelter charity shop in Edinburgh has done me really proud <laughs> about two and a half hours ago, so please revel in this as much as I am and also dying mercifully inside. Um, and that is about as funny as anything's going to get for you tonight from me, because <laughs> everything I read is quite depressing. Um, however, on that tangent, uh, I wanted to start with a poem which is called Funny. Um, I was diagnosed with, are you ready, <laughs> PTSD, anxiety, depression, bipolar 2 disorder, uh, all well before my 17th birthday, and as you can imagine, that is a pretty frightening um, CV, I guess, of experience and pain, <laughs> uh, particularly at that age, and now, I mean, it's my profession to talk about it in a way that seems like funny and light-hearted and open and endearing. Uh, which is great, um, but I really struggled. I didn't know how to say, do you know what? I'm having a shit day, I feel really anxious, or do you know what? I can't come because I'm in the pits of depression. And instead of owning that and being honest and finding the right vocabulary, I used to say, I feel funny. Um, I then decided that I wanted to completely eradicate that from my vocabulary because it was no use and now, bizarrely, I'm going to say that word actually probably about 35 times in the next 20 seconds, <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> um, anyway, I feel funny. Not like when the light bounces from the sky and you feel heat stroke from the sunny days of closing in on jokes. Not, that girl is intelligently witty. She's so funny. I feel done in. Funny ha-has speak no fun in the language I have learned. Funny feelings aren't the taste of a jovial summer's eve descending burner. Funny feeling is a feeling of a leaf I'm scared to turn. A funny feeling is me seething at a friend who didn't mean to hurt me. I'm a bit funny that way. Funny isn't laughing at a joke I heard you say. Funny is me cramping in the lungs and wincing. I'm okay. Funny is the last thought before I sleep. Funny is the impression of me that you'll keep. Funny is the unexplained, self-contained anxiety of breathing. Grabbing my coat before closing because I feel funny as I'm leaving. That's why I'm leaving. I feel strange. A finger couldn't pinpoint it and words cannot explain. The curse of feeling funny and knowing you've got yourself to blame. And still being unaware. I took my pills this morning, I promise you, I swear. The capsules grin at you and blister packs and eyeless, they still stare. They laugh at you like you've said something funny. There's no lies that you can throw at them, there's no amount of money, no words you can scream out bluntly. I've tried. Feeling so funny that funny isn't hysterical, so why am I crying hysterical tears? Funny was something I'd always liked, so why does this funny feeling punch me with spite? A funny feeling used to be the swig of a third pint. So why does feeling funny swing the last throw in my own fight? If I stopped feeling funny, maybe I'd get some sleep at night. I wish someone had shown me left when funny started to feel right. And I suppose the funny thing is that in life, first we laugh and then we cope. First we mould aching into satire and then claw our way into a hope that the lumps in our throats, the inhalers tucked in pockets of coats, the fraying yarns on the tether of our metaphorical ropes don't really exist. But they do. I know they do. 
And I think they deserve a more raucous applause than the monotonous bang of therapist doors or the bedlam screams on bedroom floors or the wincing pinches of scissor scores. Funny no longer feels right because there's no comedy show in sight. This is real life, and the word is depression. The medical phrases should be shouted in succession, because for all the days they've made my face nameless, it would help in abundance for them to be shamedless, for me to call them out for who they are. And I know it's wonderful that we've come quite literally this far. Forgive me, but it's unhealthy for us to stick with, dancing around a denial that nicks its legitimacy from camouflaging its pain, even though I'm the one who picked it. Saying, I feel funny, just isn't the same, because I didn't pick this. I was my own brain before this. And that, as a human, I deserve to reclaim in whatever funny sort of way I can. That's the first one. Thanks. Um, I think it's quite apt after the really embarrassing anecdote that I've just told you for me to delve even deeper into my personal life that you're not interested in and read you one called She Moves in Her Own Way. <laughs> uh, I, as I've just admitted, if that, if that feels like an admission, when you've got a microphone in front of you, you feel like you're going... <gasps> um, as I've just told you about my mental health and its ill health, uh, I've managed to find some really interesting coping mechanisms, most of them quite common. One of the main ones uh, is sex, and sex with the wrong people and sex for the wrong reasons. Thank God my mum is not in the audience. Uh, she was recently and had to hear me say that, and we now don't live together. <laughs> Joking, we do. Um, yeah, so I used to have a fair bit of sex, and definitely wasn't for the right reasons. I think I was trying to fill an empty void, not going to take that pun any further than it needs to go, uh, and it never really worked out for me, um, until one night where I thought, do you know what? What are you doing? This is so stupid. Um, and there I was at four o'clock in the morning in the back of an Uber, typing this out in my phone, feeling very, like, good. Not how I expected to it was sticky in your apartment. I stuck my eyes to every corner, where you'd stuck up old postcards, an entire museum of your life and more a window. Frame the shrilling stuck-up summer silhouettes in the pub down below. You stuck a scratched record on that played the once smooth staccato. You poured me a glass of wine that slipped sticky to my sides, that slipped your fingers across my thighs. I felt stuck. This time, I promised myself I wasn't giving up. You said, stick around, and I cleared off the dark sediment, red wine muck from my lips, and kissed you in a way that begged to reverse ownership. But instead, it sellotaped my wrists together tight around your hips whilst my internal monologue screamed, you're hopeless at this. You don't want to do this. You always do this. You don't have to be this person. You don't have to quench your thirst on him. Tell your body its anxiety isn't a passion to burst on him. Don't try and fill the void with empty consumption. This moment in time that your lie and say was sweet seduction was just another episode of you orchestrating a personality reduction into a girl you have no business being, no pleasing being. Stop teasing feeling from an inner drought that only tried to be that way because you gave all your kindness out instead of spending it on yourself. I stop. As your eyes unstuck from mine, you swig from the bottle of wine and I muster up the courage to say... I don't want to be just tonight. I've said it before, and lest it be denied. And you laugh with a cocksure sigh and hit me with another line like, why can't you just be a girl for a good time? Genuinely said that. And it's the just that juts, and it ricochets, and it snaps stuck to the ongoing conflict I have with myself. I reach for a souvenir placed on your shelf, throw it between my palms. Imagine what false comfort I'd find within your arms and put it back. I give learning from lesson a crack. I stop myself from telling you that you're such a twat. When you text me the next morning, again, serious, to say my excuse as a woman is appalling for leaving in a rush. It was sticky in your apartment, and it was there that I realized I was bored of being stuck as a girl whose muchness amounted to just the night.
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make sure you never get a second date. <laughs> um, I was going to read you another one about sex, but I just think that's unfair. Um, okay, here's something a little bit more profound, hopefully. <clears throat> um, when I was putting this collection together, it is quite literally 10, maybe like 10 to 15 years worth of my life. Um, and it was really scary. It was very, very frightening to suddenly start dredging through old diaries and look at old thought and old feeling and a lot of it sort of readdressed itself as new. Like, God, I can't, I can't believe I ever felt that way or I can't believe I ever had those feelings. And then others, I thought, oh, wow, I hated myself like that when I was 12 and nothing's really changed, um, which is awful. And I know that a lot of people feel very similarly. There's a, there's a lot of hard inner work to do, particularly when it comes to addressing our bodies. And I was just really mortified that I could ever be so cruel about myself to myself, written down, only knowing I would ever read it again. It just seemed ridiculous. So this was actually one of the last poems that I wrote for this collection, and um, I suppose it is a letter to a past self, which sounds a bit wanky, doesn't it? But you are at a poetry reading, so suck <laughs> out. You can turn them off and on. You can make them fat then thin. You could do a lot of courageous stuff if we gave them enough space to breathe in. The prodding is an obvious hurdle, and the feeling your stomach feels when it's near ready for its contents to curdle. The thighs leaning back, trying to impression a gap, waiting for a waistline to waste away. It's all a trap. Squeezing anxiously at your face and your nail beds being the last thing that you could taste. Wondering if down there is tight enough, wondering if your jawline is slight enough enough. These bodies that we've made are much stronger than we ever knew before we saw what we'd face. They're bigger than our thoughts and sturdier than our psyche. It's a miracle that they can't speak because if they could, they'd shout, why can't you just like me? I'm doing so much stuff that you don't ever see. I'm forcing organs and beating breaths. I'm keeping us alive quietly. And all you do is complain. What's sad is it's fair and often contrite. We do all of this personal grieving, even though we know it's not right. But how can we change our learned perceptions when the thoughts that we breed are invited to receptions daily, to listen to our own lack of worth? When our bodies are trailed through media's dirt, when school's not about grades, but the length of your skirt. If I'm half a size smaller, will I be liked first? I've only had liquids, so how do I quantify thirst? When sex isn't about love, but how much did it hurt? When do we remember our worth? It really is worth it to think about how we're working, not to fixate on the vanity parade that we're constantly scrolling and old-school surfing. This stuff we consume is so fleeting. When there's stuff that supports us a whole lifetime that keeps us breathing and we shun it. Tell us, in a lottery of bodies, everyone else has won it but us. That's crazy. Crazy that we fill ourselves with so little that we're hazy we can't think properly. Because our diets are so light that our concentration's sloppy. That our skin is so grim because we drink ourselves so wobbly. Our head bangs so bad that we can't help but think somberly. We're chain-smoking at the sight of a sky, so you can just pause for a moment and on your own sigh. What's wrong with me? That's not a good use of a body. It should be angry and charging, not knackered and starving. It has so much power to be starting anything we drive it towards. Past a distraction of how we treated it before. Past us ignoring its own personal encore to be reignited. For the love of whatever is good, what the hell are we fighting? When the skin we're in holds us closer than our next of kin ever could. Why are we fighting against something that gods never would? Why are we bowing to a new fate that our muchness is weighed up to the weight that we weigh? that our sumptuous, ethereal, smart humanness means we'll always think we are paupers when we have the same bodies as queens. Watch me do my nervous flick, like, where are the other poems? Um, you know that really magical moment when you pick up a book and you read the title of the book in the book and you think, I see what they did here. I really wanted to gift that moment to anyone that dared 
put 9.99 as a price tag on my feelings. So uh, I included a poem called She Must Be Mad. <laughs> um, and it doesn't really need an introduction. They called me many things in many places. All well-intentioned, muffled nouns spluttered from kind faces. Adjectives, then descriptors. Ushering packets of pills and tales of other strong victors, sympathetic sighs and brushed smiles. The trying advice to dissolve difficult, enmeshed vices. They all said things would get better. To treat this thing as a workable quirk and not an evil personal personality vendetta that I had in for myself. Try loving yourself. And when you do, tell others how. The journey you've been on is another girl's now, another kid just like you, pressing their brain, shouting, ow. The honesty will hurt a bit. It might make you sad. But ignite a spark that burns brighter than all the times you heard she must be mad. Ignite a spark that burns brighter than all of the hurt to smell. Yeah, I guess I am, but it isn't all bad. Ignite a spark that burns brightest from all of the dirt. The dribbling tear-sodden thirst. To drink to the girl you knew. She must be mad, but, my God, she's brave too. Um, I'm going to do two more for you, which, for my own personal reasons, it just feels incredibly indulgent to get to do this. <laughs> like, everybody, hush. I've been sad, and you must all learn why. <laughs> um, I had the privilege of doing 10 at 10 this morning, um, and 10 minutes at 10 o'clock. Uh, and I thought, oh, you know, having a feel of what I think I'm going to read. And I picked this poem, um, not realising about... 10 or well, 10 minutes, 10 seconds in, three six year olds walked in and sat down. Like, sorry, mum and dad. Uh, so it was delivered in a very different way. But the poem I'm about to read you is called Porn. And now you understand why I was so mortified. Um, I think we've all been done a serious, like, disservice and misjustice of learning about bodies and sex and love and relationships through the internet. Um, and I've, yeah, it's a bit grim, isn't it? You know, like our most innate, intimate, like normal human stuff that we're supposed to learn in a loving capacity is shown to us much too young to understand that and in a way that really doesn't teach us anything that is conducive or kind. Um, so I wrote a poem about it, because that's what I do. She moans as he throws her body. From arch feline back to face in the pillow on her tummy. He pulls her by the ponytail. Her eyes widen with excitement. Loneliness as well. Banshee screams and hollow slaps, perfect nudity and waxed ass cracks. Half taken by the throng of flung off thongs, I'm bemused and sad and thinking, why do they never show the naps? The intimate legs twined like spaghetti, cooked and thrown back in the pack, stuck with starchy love. That's the real magic, that. That's what turns me on. When after all the sheets have seen where you lay and nose touches nose and you still know where to kiss with the lights still off because you're lit up in a childlike beam. And through panting pause, your mind wanders lost, feeling your skin cling innate to one another, like a baby to a breast. That first breath, when you exhale and simmer, two maudlin corpses too hot and they still shiver, craving more whilst digesting a slither of moments ago. She moans as he throws her body, wanting it with a posture comfy. He runs his fingers through her hair and tells her that she's lovely, beautiful, in fact. He grabs her by the waist as she holds his face and steadies gaze, whispers lightly in his ear, I'd rather make love to you than just simply let you fuck me. There's plenty of room for explicits and complicity. Now that I'd understand. A prude I'd never claim to be, though nor a connoisseur of wild intimacy. I've always taken it how it's given to me directed it occasionally but there's something that seems strange to me that we get off on a close-up of a staged aggressive filthy when we all know in reality the best is sweet and purely ends the same the two of you vulnerable and glowing with the taste of each other's name Right, one last one before you think, oh my God, I hope I never bump into this woman in a bar. Um, the likely chance of that happening here, very. Um, 
from talking about porn to talking about my granddad. Uh, um, my granddad is my best mate in the entire world. He is a total saint and gentleman and soft, soppy sod. And I really have no idea what kind of woman I would be had I not had him growing up. And I'm lucky now to have him as a friend, as a woman. Um, and I just, my God, that man. You know when you've got such a, such a kinship with kin, <laughs> but that like incredibly special feeling. As soon as you sit with someone, you feel safe and you feel known and you feel heard before you've even started speaking. And um, unfortunately, he had a stroke last year. Um, and now his language is really confused and he, he knows who I am, but it's all a bit muddled. And it's now, you know, you have to find the silver lining. It's like a blessing in getting my best friend again, but as a new person and I get to re-meet him. Um, he very kindly uh, has been my biggest supporter from day one, well before I decided to be a poet, but at the tender age of five, I told him that I had written The Owl and the Pussycat, and he let me think that he thought that until I was 12. <laughs> um, so I thought, you know what, it's about goddamn time that I wrote him a poem that I actually did write myself, um, and it's called Seaweed, and I'll leave you with this one. Before it was the future, before it was my brain, before it was gun reforms, before it was climate change, before it was heartbreak, before it was potential, before it was plastics in the sea, before it was existential, before it was family illness, before it was personal tax, before it was the price of houses, before it was the price of a wax, before I knew what really worried me, it was seaweed. Long, gangly tendrils of green, wefts of Medusa's very own wig, how'd you ask me? Evil, slithery things that clasped around my ankle, left in the water by one of Poseidon's own vandals, my two innocent limbs, braving a leisurely dangle, until I decided the holiday was cut short because I was convinced I was up next to be strangled. Before it was my weight, before it was purpose, before it was societal standards, before it was junior nurses, before it was Donald Trump, before it was dairy alternatives, before it was the state of my skin, before it's what state we're in with the Conservatives, before it was, what do you mean, no Wi-Fi, before it was Twitter trolls, before it was feeling like a fraud, before it was over-ambitious goals, it was seaweed, before it was the effects of contraception, before it was terrorism, before it was the end of inception, before it was faux feminism, it was seaweed, my first experience of the unknown. I ran Sandy Toad into the only arms I trusted. Grandad, I cried flustered, I can't go back in there. Frightened, I was pointing at the sea whilst he was laughing at me. Not in a way that I know now, no, he was giggling kindly. Darling, it's just grass. Come on, I'll show you. And he did that gorgeous thing when as a kid, adults pretend to throw you and then catch you and bring you back to their chest. And you sniff in a nuzzle as they kiss your head and everything melts away. All my worries were just bits of grass in the sea. All the hope that I needed was him smiling at me. All the knowledge I had had come from his brain and despite all of my anxieties, that thought keeps me sane. Someone will always know more. Someone will always be grinning. Someone will always be willing. Someone will hold you when it all seems too big. Someone will show you the real size that it is. Yes, the world's scary. My God, is it tough. But there will always be someone who loves you enough to try and take it away. And that someone made you someone enough to be your own someone to make sure you're okay. Before it was seaweed, it was blissful and calm. But I'd cradle an ocean of watery weeds to know that I'd always be safe in your arms. Thank you. Um, kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa, ko teiza ko ingoa, ko pōneke uh, Aotearoa ahau, ko te whanau āpanui me Ngāti Pro te iwi. My name is Tay Tibble, I'm from New Zealand, I'm Māori, um, I'm from places of LinkedIn. <laughs> oh yay, <laughs> thank you. And I um, whakapapa, my iwi is my tribe, is te whanau āpanui in Ngāti Pro on the East Coast. Um, thank you for having me, uh, Edinburgh Bookfest and um, Scotland. I'm having a really good time, thank you. Um, 
The first poem I'm going to read um, today is called In the 1960s, An Influx of Māori Women. And it kind of speaks to a time in New Zealand post-World War II when a lot of um, Māori women uh, moved from, from rural areas, from their papakainga, from their homelands, to, to work in the cities. It's also how um, my family came to, came to be in, in Wellington, where I live now. Um, and it's from my nana. It's called In the 1960s, An Influx of Māori Women. Move to Tinakori Road in their printed mini-dresses. Grow flowers on white, stof- white stone rooftops to put in their honeycomb vases. Dust the pussy-shaped ashtray their husbands bought on vacation in Sydney. Walk to Kakaldi and Staines while their husbands are at work. Spend their monthly allowance on a mint green margarita mixer. Buy makeup, Elizabeth Arden in the shade too pale pink. Buy vodka and dirty magazines on the way home from the chemist. Hide the vodka and dirty magazines in the spare refrigerator in the basement. Telephone their favourite sister in Gisborne. Go out to dinner with their husbands and dance with their friends. And smile at the wives who refuse to kiss their ghost pink cheeks. Order dessert like pecan pie but never eat it. Eat two pieces of white bread in the kitchen with the light off. Slip into an apricot nylon nightgown freshly ordered off the catalogue. Keep quiet with their husbands' blue-veined arms corseting their waists. Remember the appointment that they made to get their hair fixed on Lampton Quay. Think about drowning themselves in the bathtub instead. Resurface with clean skin, then rinse and repeat. This poem is called... um, Our nan lets us smoke inside. Our nan lets us smoke inside, but only when we drink wine and play cards on the kitchen table. I feel glamorous when I drop my ash into the power shell in the middle. Our nan wears black leather pumps and dries wishbones from chicken carcasses in an empty margarine container on top of the fridge. She's not my real nan, but I have always wished she was. I wished I was born with her, blood in my veins, her dark waikato DNA, high cheekbones and heavy wet eyes just like my sister. Now Nan met her late husband in the late 60s. She was dressed in a little mod dress, her black hair flipped, and he was a cowboy with mutton chops and tan-lined legs and short cream shorts, who rode off to work every morning with a commercial digger for a horse butt. He'd pick us up in a station wagon on Sundays, Johnny Cash and his metronome voice making us fall asleep against the dusty windows. So we would stop for a fillet of fish and a strawberry milkshake for lunch and for dinner. But he always picked my sister up more. And at his funeral, us girls carried the mismatched flowers behind our brothers in black sunglasses. And at the service, we all got up and sang, I hope you're dancing in the sky, but it was painful and flat and sounded mostly like coughing. And during the burial, nobody exhaled a word word as my nan ashed out a half-sucked cigarette in the fresh, sour soil. And in the car park, we all smoked back tears with another cigarette pacifier, like babies numbed on a nicotine nipple. Thank you. Red-blooded males. Your father didn't speak to me the first two times I saw him. You said that you used to go hunting together, sometimes for weeks on end, hardly speaking. And I imagine the two of you, silently camouflaged and deceiving, weepy-eyed does drinking from the foot of a waterfall, innocent to the sound of size 11 boots crushing the life out of clovers. It's funny the difference between what you notice and what takes notice of you. Your mother's dresser, covered in pig tusks and ram skulls, housing silver rings, and a single bottle of Estee Lauder foundation, too pink for me to use, but made her look like rare meat. Seven lucky stag heads stabbed into the walls, made her feel like she was being watched at all times. I should have helped her cook and wash the dishes, instead I drank 
Heineken's until I was slack-jawed enough to make fun of his music. The only metal that I like is gold and hangs around the neck of a rapper. He positioned his thumb and trigger finger on the dial, turned it up and smiled. I said, no. I've never been hunting. I'm a vegetarian. But I did see a taxidermy cat in a feather, fed- in a feather headdress pulling a tiny wooden chariot at a museum once. And after your mother left him, he came down to visit us. We went to a bar filled with dried flowers and leftover Halloween decorations. I comment on the little plastic skeletons between sips, and he says, You strike me as a details girl, whatever that means, but coolly I said, yeah. I try to notice things. I'm a modern city woman. I practice mindfulness. I'm trying to reach nirvana. When it's my turn to buy the drinks, he tells his friend to slip me a nata, and he puts a 50 in my bra. And when drunk and asked what I would do if I was lost in the forest and I came across what I thought was a fire in the distance, I said I would get scared and die. Like that time I was on the hair razor in Luna Park overlooking Sydney and felt my soul leave my body in an easy resignation. He said, You don't strike me as the type of girl who would just give up. I shrugged. Didn't know I had anything worth giving up in the first place. Once mum tried to scare my sister and I by grabbing us as we finished our makeup in the bathroom. I froze and tried to slip down the wall. My sister punched her in the nose. Not sure who learned what that day, but she's fire and I'm stone. And the only time that your father ever hit you was when you pointed your shotgun in his direction. The number one rule of hunting is never aim your gun at anything that you do not intend to kill. He brought his palm to your head and the words still rattle around in your skull like tinnitus. So you didn't hear me wince when you showed me the skin of a deer that you killed at 16, spotty like Bambi because you shot her in the summer. And your father walked in eating a bowl of mints and laughed and showed me his kill because his kill was bigger. And in your childhood bedroom, I made you cover the taxidermy bore on the wall with a towel before I even thought about taking my clothes off. You touched me, pulled your hand away quickly because it was hot and slimy like a dear heart. And your embarrassment softened you into confession, admitted that once you accidentally shot an expecting mother and watched with pulling horror as your father plunged his bare hands into the burning carcass and pulled the baby out. And you watched him snap its neck. You thought he would give it mouth to mouth and he wiped his hands on your khaki t-shirt, the one that your mother couldn't wash out. Thank you. So this is my book, Pocahontas. Um, it's like a hybridized transliteration of Pocahontas. I write, um, it's been, and it's about my indigeneity. Um, so a lot of my, my work is about. Um, so I'm going to read a poem that kind of speaks to that. Um, it's called Identity Politics. And it kind of talks to um, colonization and feeling uh, dispossessed from, from our culture, um, especially the fact that um, you know, we used to be navigators and how um, you know, we used to be able to navigate and move through the world by adhering to natural elements, looking to the stars and the seasons. Um, it's called Identity Politics. I buy a Mana Party t-shirt from AliExpress, $9.99 free shipping via standard post. Estimated arrival, 14 to 31 working days, checking unavailable via DSL, Asian size XXL. I wear it as a dress. With thigh-high vinyl boots and fishnets, I post a picture to Instagram. Am I navigating correctly? Tell me. Which stars were my ancestors looking at? And which ones burnt the black of searching irises and reflected something genuine back? I look to. Rihanna and Kim Kardashian shimmering in Swarovski crystals makes my eyes glow with seeing. I am inhaling long white clouds and I see rivers of milk running towards orange oceans of sunlit honey. Tell me, am I navigating correctly? And I want to spend my money on something bougie, like custom-made ponamu hoop earrings. I want to make them myself, but my line does not trace back to the beauties in the south, making amulets with elegant fingers. I go back into blackness. 
I go back and fill in the gaps, searching through archives of advertisements. Welcome to the wonderland of the South Pacific. Tiki bars, traffic light cocktails and paper umbrellas. Tell me, am I navigating correctly? Staring through the storm drunk and wet face, waking up to the taste of hangover. A dry mouth, the strange bed, the shirt above my head is the flag fluttering over everything. What are we celebrating? The 6th of February, Tiriti or Waitangi, the anniversary of the greatest failed marriage this nation has ever seen. In America, couples have divorce parties that we always arrive late to every scene. Tell me, am I navigating correctly? The sea that our ancestors traversed stretches out further than the stars. That's oh, really... Um, um, I read a poem called um, called Hooky Mai, and it's a war. It's a it's a it's a war poem, um, speaking to um, the Maori soldiers who went to fought, fight in World War Two, part of the C Company, Maori Battalion. Um, and in New Zealand, um, I have to read this everywhere. I'm like I'm like they call me not to be a d- <laughs> they call me a uh, nation sweetheart war poet. <laughs> so just with context. That was a weird flex, I know, sorry. Um, <clears throat> Hooky Mai. She kisses him goodbye with her eyes still wet and a light from the last swim in the Awatere River. At the train station celebration, she leads the kapahaka, but her voice keeps on breaking under and over itself like waves, like last night on the riverbank between the lots of moss and baby's breath where he had kissed her sticky until she cried out from her chest and she was thinking about the rolls of white fabric her sister kept in the shed and how she could make a dress pressed with shiny bits of shell and she could even fix a veil from the weave of a fishing net or wear knots of pale hydrangeas like a crown upon her head. And then together they would move to the empty plot of ancestral land forgotten by the sea and have little brown babies that she would make sure to stuff fat with potatoes and wobbly mutton. And her children would slurp kinna in the summer, collect driftwood for the fires on their way home from school. And their father would take up a good job in Gisborne, return home with sacks of boiled sweets and powdery, jam-filled treats, and maybe, on special occasions, a European perfume or powder that she would keep but never use. And already she could smell the florals and the meat and feel them turning inside her, sensations so visceral that she cried out from her chest, but... When the sun lit up the day and the train started pulling away, with every salute, march and funeral wave farewell, she felt the entire world changing in the lump and her throat swelled like all the seas of sailing that threatened to take him from her and she had to swallow hard. But she promised that every day she would be the first to check the mail and that was the only vow she took. I'm going to read one more. Um, thank you for having me again. Um, um, this, po- this one's called Pocahontas. It's the, it's the title essay. It's a lyric essay, actually, from my collection. And it's, um, it's an essay about um, indigenous hair, do's and don'ts. In the beginning. The earliest memory to survive the red fog of infancy reveals your great-grandmother on her bed cutting the thick, peppery plait falling down her back with a blunt pair of orange-handled kitchen scissors. Remember the resistance. Imagine if the ropes of Maui had snapped and the world had been plunged back into the womb of darkness. And after she died, you found it again, coiled and paled like the skin of an ancient snake, and you held it to your throat between her unwanted fur coats and felt like Cleopatra, deciding not to wait for the Romans. How not to be dead in a year of snakes. According to Greek mythology, according to Wikipedia, Medusa was a monster, generally described as a winged human female with venomous snakes in place of her hair, and gazes upon her hideous face would be turned to stone. However, it is less known that Medusa was a master carver, engraving her existence in bone forever. Anything else said about her is a rumour and a violent appropriation. 
In fact, it must be difficult not to sprout a head of snakes in a society that constantly hisses at you. Samson and Delilah. When I was 13, I secretly shredded my hair with my nana's iron in the attic. From then on, I crushed myself skinny between hot plates every morning, and the smell of dead ends burning was the scent of prayer candles, aki, 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 amini. Starry Nights and Nelson. And my nana is a wallflower, but a flower nonetheless. This means she is always being looked at and looked at at her expense. When she was born, she was born with a new kind of beauty, the type that truly ached in the 50s, brown skin stretched over white stock bones. She had her father's height and his perfect featureless features set alight by the warmth of her mother's black sand eyes and hair, but hers were so long and so straight that it was dizzying to look at, like looking at the stars in a place where there is only sky and feeling completely awed but terrified by the great burning darkness. It's the kind of beauty that makes men crash cars, abandon wives and launch ships. But unfortunately for her, all this is very loud and my nana has a wallflower, but a flower nonetheless. The Waikato Wars. When I lie in a bath, I felt the tub with blue black hair, bruised and swampy. I imagine that I am the 19th century body of a mother and the Waikato forced from my pa, fleeing in the forest, found swollen in an ordinary grave. A step-by-step guide to dying. Relax, wash hair with tears, condition with kumarika oil, coconut oil, olive oil of the ancient Greek kind, relax. Egg whites for a hot, glossy shine. Gasoline for a hot, glossy shine. Light a match for an edgy new haircut, distressed as in. Relax. Buy a box of Nordic Blonde every full moon, but never use it. This is imperative. Rinse thoroughly with intergenerational trauma and pink water. Blow dry straight with a 1950s gold soft paddle brush made from the hair of the finest Palomino ponies. Now take a step back and relax. Admire your silky, manageable name. Pocahontas. In 1995, I was born, and Walt Disney's animated classic Pocahontas was released. Have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? Mum has. I howled when my mother told me that Pocahontas was real, but went with John Smith to England and got a disease and died. Representation is important. The Pussycat Dolls. Nicole Scherzinger was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. Nicole Scherzinger was born into a Catholic family. Nicole Scherzinger's parents separated when she was just a baby. Nicole Scherzinger moved with her mother to Louisville, Kentucky. Nicole Scherzinger admits that while growing up, her family did not have a lot of money. Nicole Scherzinger thanks her mother for all the support she gave her to become what she is today. Nicole Scherzinger was the only Pacific Island princess I ever saw in the centre of a TV screen. So in mass class, we practiced swinging out our chairs from behind us while grinding our hips and untying our hair. We loosened up the buttons of our school shirts accordingly, and I did eye the teacher. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me and Nicole Scherzinger? Silas Knights in Wellington. In a hotel room, a man runs his hands through your hair like a surveyor. He is surprised when he asks you if it's dyed, groans when he tells you that he's never seen hair that black before. But what he really means is skin. What he really means is you've been a bad, bad girl. What he really means is I don't typically fuck with minority races, but I still want to fuck you. And he touches you in a place that makes you wish that your hair was a crown of snakes, but it's not enough to make you leave. Your mouth is a perpetual O that looks like a yes, please, and never a no. Representation is important. Politics and activism. I have decided to tactically develop a crush on Honey Hardaweather. This is really funny if you know who Honey Hardaway is. Like, just it's, this goes off in New Zealand. It's so funny. Um, he's a politician. <laughs> this is for my sanity and protection. In order to achieve this, I am rebranding as a Black Panther. Turtlenecks, aviators, and Ranganui Walker. Kafaifai Tonumato are the only Maori words I know, and I know it's not enough. But damn, they are a good few words to start with. We will fight. Everybody talks about my 17-year-old sister's hair to the point that it causes her anxiety. She wants to get a trim, but she has to negotiate her colonial guilt with our ancestors first. 
Personally, as the eldest, I inherit the most mana, but I will do us both a favor and cut it while she is sleeping. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. How are you all doing today? Good. That doesn't sound too confident. <laughs> but I hope you're having a good day so far. Um, so my collection, In Search of Equilibrium, um, explores the impact of death on us um, physically and emotionally. Um, and it starts off with exploring my grandfather's Alzheimer's and eventual death. Um, and the following conversations that happened um, with myself regarding my own, um, the, the effects that death had had on me in terms of my own thoughts and mental health, and also kind of the way I started to observe other members of my family and the way in which they reacted. Um, this poem I'm going to share is titled Sing With Me and Do Not Die of Thirst. And I was doing some research about Alzheimer's um, because for my grandfather, even though he forgot a lot of things, he would remember the lyrics to a lot of his favorite songs. Um, and during that research, I found out it's because music is stored in a different part in our brain. And that was what inspired this poem. Alzheimer's patients sing every lyric to their favorite songs, and this casual act becomes a dance for defiance. Research shows our memory of music remains intact like the clothes of a missing child kept by a mother. The brain stores music in a different place, a subtle precaution. My grandmother bathes my grandfather and lyrics spill from his mouth like water from a drowned child. He sings Johnny Nash's I Can See Clearly Now in a bass so sharp it cuts the water in half to form a space my grandmother can walk through. He saw water and his brain's automatic response was to regurgitate a song that had the word rain in it. My grandmother takes in his voice and her skin splits open like an overstuffed suitcase. My God, it must hurt for someone you love to remember a song in clearer detail than they do your face. She wonders how we know to accentuate blue skies, proof that music muscle memory can stretch more than shaky meat. My grandmother joins in to harmonize. The Bible says two shall become one voice and live till death cracks the voice in half. I paraphrase that with anger. Her voice is shaky as waist beads on a felakuti backup dancer. Grief tugs on your vocal cords like heavy braids, leaves it with sore and thinning edges. As they harmonize, my grandmother morphs into the song, wipes water from her husband's face, sings, I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. And once again, they are two vivacious youths, whirling through a garden in summer. He says, you look like the Galmona I danced with, and the water in the bathtub levitates to become rain. And this is the first poem in the collection. Um, I was thinking about how in tough times we turn to things that are greater than us to try to find meanings for our existence, particularly faith. Um, and this poem is titled The Unedited Version of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, shadow be thy face, for thy kingdom has been obstructed by my grandfather forgetting my name. Thy will be done in his body. Maybe God's will is a butcher's knife that cuts into one flesh to feed another a plate of life lessons. I swallowed my grandfather's sufferings and my belly is bloated with life lessons. I guess thy will be done in his body, but on the condition he ends up in heaven. A man can't ask forgiveness for sins he can't remember. Give us a day of my grandfather's hands break bread during dinner while he talks to us about Nigerian politics. Give us a day. And my grandfather's bladder is not a torn cloud vomiting a flood. Give me a day. And my grandfather is telling me about the healing powers of the aloe vera plants in his garden. My grandmother scrubs the urine of his body. This is love. This is not a trespassing. She need not ask for forgiveness. Lead us not into temptation to curse thy name. My grandmother holds the rosary beads like a line of pills she wants to overdose on. Faith is all I know is a cloth I shield my grief in, even when I fear that God might be a thin shadow. Thank you.
Um, a lot of the collection is through the lens of faith and music. Um, my love for music was passed down from my grandparents and then passed down to my parents and to me. Um, and music kind of became my entry into self-confidence and into an assuming like, confidence in some ways. Um, and I remember in, in boarding school, kind of the coolest kids were those who knew the lyrics to all the hip-hop songs um, and knew all the dance moves. Um, and hip-hop became that genre into self-discovery in some ways. Um, and kind of when I would feel down, that would be the music that would make me feel like I was on top of the world. So this particular poem is titled... First of all, does anyone here know who the rapper Fat Joe is? Are you, like, embarrassed to admit that you know that rapper? Okay, so um, Fat Joe has a particular song called Lean Back. Um, and when the song comes on, everyone kind of leans back at the party. It's a dance move. Um, and, yeah, that's just for context. This poem is titled Lean Back as Instructed by Fat Joe in one of the greatest hip-hop songs of all time. Thank you. You stand in front of a mirror, lean your right shoulder backwards at a 45-degree angle, and by the time you return to the mirror, your bones have stretched into hangers draped with gold chains. You wear arrogance like a rented wedding dress. You accessorize it with lyrics you memorize during lunch breaks, with no one to tell you to quiet the noise. This is new to you, a joy that makes you feel like you are moonwalking on God's eyelashes. Hip-hop is the unofficial national anthem at school. So when the students gather, you recite the lyrics to lean back, lean your shoulder at a 45-degree angle, and watch them gaze at the perfect arc, your tongue burning with no lyric left unscraped. Till now, you carry the name, unidentified female body in yearbook pictures. You've tried scratching out the name, shifted to the busy table at the cafeteria, but forget subtlety. Sometimes... You need a kind of confidence you can dangle on your neck like a shark on a hook, an act of pretense, to tell others you wear shinier ghosts, shimmy your name in their face, and what better instructor to mimic if not hip-hop. You watch as your name gets pinned to a notice board of tongues. Their tongues touch your name like hands reaching for the garments of Jesus. You pose for the New Year book pictures, chains dangling on your weak neck. This was never you but who wouldn't stretch their body into a flag to avoid being deported back into their shadow? Okay. Um, this poem is inspired by a, a time in my life where um, this is probably around my early teenage years. I didn't really understand what depression anxiety was and I didn't have the language for it and the older I've gotten the closer I've gotten with my mom and having those conversations um, my mom's an optometrist for for context this poem this is titled sight test during dinner with my mother I'm trying not to blink too much or the word therapy might slip from the folds of my eyelids like a pose from a scaffolded building and turn my mother into a dented doorframe the eyes cannot keep a secret they blab about what the body is going through, play dead to signal a carcass inside your ribcage. The therapist is training my eyes to swallow more light so I can view the alleyway in my lungs when disposing of depression. Back from work, my mother is detailing what she saw in a patient's eyes. She speaks of the girl who would have gone blind if her retinal detachment were not spotted so quickly. I chew my tongues into gasps in response to her stories. I made her dinner to relieve her stress. We are lounging in a bright living room. When you're running from the dark, even a light bulb will feel like God's eye socket. I can tell my mother I went to a therapy session. There will be no harm, but the words are stuck in my eyelids. I will tell her once the miracle has come to pass. She asks if she can test her new optical instrument on me. I reply, which eye should we start with? Thank you. I'm going to share two more poems. Um, so during the time when 
kind of like observing my, my grandfather's funeral and, and all of that. Um, I was observing my, my father as well and the way in which he grieved. And I realized that death was something that he feared more than I realized. And growing up, I always saw him as this figure, as someone who never feared anything. And I found the one thing that made him uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and that was what kind of inspired this poem. It's this title, Closer. Home. My father hugs me for the first time in 23 years, and he feels like a house without walls. Fill out this questionnaire. One, is that a birthmark on your face? Two, do you still want to be an accountant? Three, what is your favorite food? Four, why don't you call me more? Five, was your mother a better father? Six, if I die, will you cry? Medical report. I found the medical report. The thin white paper peeked out of the bookshelf like a white flag, practicing the position of surrender. Doctor claims his kidney might be hardening into a rock that can weigh his body into a casket. I slap on denial like a pastor. My father has dodged death so many times. I do not ask if he will be fine. I assume so. Fear. The TV is on loud, tutin WWE. He sits with his face resting on his palm. His fingers tremble as he presses the area around his kidney. The body is a remote control. You never know which organ is the button that would lead to a sad channel. Behind closed doors. I am still a tender child. Time heals slower than a plastic bag degrades. My body shrinks like a cloth washed in the wrong temperature. Still, I pray for my father so much, my palms are warm enough to burn my face. The Last Supper. I break bread with my father and watch him chew to remind myself he had a mouth all this while. He babbles banter and my mouth plays the laughing track I recorded in preparation for this day. Last night he asked what I wanted for dinner, served me a plate of forgiveness. What we had in common. Today, my father stood under the living room light bulb. The light drew features onto his face. We point out our similar features, how my eyes also arc at the tip. The more time we spend together, the more I realize even our ghosts share DNA. He has one hand pressed on the area where his kidney is. I do not ask why. I pretend he's hungry, and I ask what he wants for dinner. Thank you. This last poem is titled Tailoring Grief. It was inspired by um, the tradition of grief, um, of grieving and how it differs in different cultures. And I went to Nigeria for my grandfather's funeral. And if you go to, kind of in our tradition, um, if you die of, if, you're, if you die when you're older, it's kind of seen as a blessing. And so the funeral feels like a party and everyone wears matching outfits and all of that. Um, and that was what inspired this poem. Tailoring Grief. The tailor says you have to get measured to make sure grief fits right on your body. If grief fits too tight, it will suck movement out of you, make you as still as the dead you are mourning. I once wore grief so tight on my body, my ribs tangled into a bow. The tailor also says wearing an oversized grief will turn you into a tripping hazard. There is only so much a body can take, even a plane has weight limits. We lined up at the tailors to get measured for my grandfather's funeral. The women for their astral care, the men for their agbada. The orange material draped on the table. It is our culture to celebrate in color coordination. I handed the tailor a torn page from Genevieve magazine and pointed out the style I wanted. Imagine if Mary wore a headpiece for the funeral of Jesus, tied it so tight she was dizzy enough to feel absent from her body. I picked up my cloth from the tailor on the seventh day. The off-shoulder dress exposed my neck so the dented collarbones could collect my tears. At the funeral, my grandmother wore a dress with sleeves puffed like swollen lungs. I held her. The tassels at the end of my dress dangled like a rain of breathing tubes. From afar, our orange dresses look like saliva dripping from the gaping mouth of the sun, 
the whole village watched in holy envy. But envy is only effective from afar, does not see the layers of blood-stained threads that sew this body together. But give me a culture that requires grief to be sewn delicately on the body, and I promise I'll take it any day. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us this afternoon. Please come over to the bookshop to get some uh, copies of their books signed and another round of applause for today's poet. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.